Well, good morning, Veritas. It's great to be with you all. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Matt Hofert, one of the pastors on staff, and I get to serve on our adult ministry team. And I think I was here maybe five or so weeks ago and shared how my family, wife, five kids, we were homeless nomads for the summer. Uh, got some good news. We closed on our house a couple days ago, which is awesome. And so super excited for that. Um, it was crazy summer. We slept in 14 different places over the course of about 70 days. Uh, but we were just so thankful for the people of Veritas, for people going above and beyond, meals, places to stay, all those things. And so just super thankful for our church family. Um, something else that's been happening this summer is our summer teaching series, right? So we've been going through the life of Christ. And it's one of those things where we've looked at several aspects of his life. We've looked at his life. We've looked at his, his birth, several of his characteristics, his identity, who he was. We looked at the Great Commission. Last week, Jordan said, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go make disciples. And he's going to be with us always. Next week is his return. Okay, and so we've looked at so many aspects. You might be wondering, like, what, what are we talking about today? Okay, because we know, or at least a lot of us know, a lot about his life. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with the fact that he's coming again at some point in the future to defeat sin and death once and for all, to uh, gather up his followers, to right all wrongs. And the question becomes, but what is Jesus doing now? I understand in the past, he came here, he lived, he was crucified, he rose again. I understand in the future, he's coming back. But what is Jesus doing right now? What's he doing this very second? Taking time off? Is he relaxing? Is he just kind of hanging out? That's a question that I think a lot of Christians don't know the exact answer to. That's a question that I think a lot of Christians wonder at times. That's a question whose answer has a very strong implications that should give us great joy great confidence, and great hope. Even if many of you would intellectually say, it makes sense he's doing something. It makes sense he's at work. It makes sense he's active. Many of you, if you're honest with yourself, might be like, yeah, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like he's doing anything. I don't sense his presence on a regular basis. I don't sense his activity. Veritas, I get to interact with a lot of people in the context of our church, leaders, people, everywhere in between, and I know the weight that many people in this church are carrying. I know there's relational conflict. I know there's marriage struggles. I know there's financial hardships. I know there's anxiety. I know there's doubt. I know there's worry. I know there's burden. I know there's uncertainty, and I know there's lack of hope. And many of you might be asking If Jesus was doing something right now, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this way and why is this happening? So the question we're going to answer this morning is what is Jesus doing? And it's my hope that the answer not only encourages you, not only gives you hope, but also just causes you to worship like crazy. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 7, we're going to be in a couple verses in this chapter. We're also going to kind of bounce back and forth, but those should be up on the screen. But we're going to actually start by reading one verse this morning. So it's Hebrews 7, 25. 
And it's short, so we're going to read it twice, if you're okay with that. It says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more time. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the thing. This is a very short verse, but there's a lot of stuff packed into this one sentence. A couple words that you don't use very, very often, intercession, right? Uttermost. You guys ever use that in a sentence? No, my challenge to you by the end of the day, use the word uttermost somehow. All right. I actually had a few people last Sunday from Cedar Rapids email me and text me with the sentence in their, their mind, which is great. But before we unpack those two words, verse 25 begins with consequently. Consequently, nobody say that is, is therefore or as a result. Okay, so before we look at those two words, we've got to look at consequently. Why is that there? What would the original audience have known? What would they have heard? What would they have understood that the word consequently would have made sense? You look at some context this morning. What's going on? Why is this sentence, why is this verse so impactful? We're going to start broad and narrow in. Okay, and so we're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to look at some things. If, if you're kind of nerdy, if you like this stuff, you're going to like this morning, at least the first part of it. If, if you're not, just stick with me, right? But we're going to start wide and go narrow. In the first few books of the Old Testament, okay, we're starting broad, we're starting wide. First few books of the Old Testament, God made a covenant with a man named, anyone know? Father Abraham, yes. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham and said, your family is going to become the nation of Israel. Right, God's people, the Israelites. Then Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. God gave Moses and the Israelites the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. They made a covenant with God. They built a tabernacle, which represented the presence of God with them. And they had priests, and they offered sacrifices. Okay, super high-level overview, but just know that there was an old way of doing things. There was an old covenant that existed between God and his people that involved priests and sacrifices. The priests acted as mediators or representatives between God and his people. They interceded. There's one of those words. They were go-betweens. They intervened on their behalf. Okay, we're, we're bringing it more specific. Going to the book of Hebrews now, okay? Hebrews was most likely written to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience. So they would have understood some of this context. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. But for whatever reason, they were facing persecution and they were wavering in their faith. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to these people saying, Jesus is better. Stay faithful. Stay strong. Don't waver. Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament priests. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better uh, than all the things that have existed previously. Now, for us, we understand that. It's like, yeah, that, that, that makes sense that he's better than the old sacrificial system. But for the original audience, this would have been a profound statement. He wants them to see that Jesus is better. And so leading up to and in Hebrews chapter 7, we see the mention of Levitical priests. 
they were to represent Israel before God, and they were to offer sacrifices to God on the behalf of the people. These priests were mediators. They interceded. They went between the people and God, God and the people. So hopefully after all that, you see that priests were an important part of the Old Testament. But there were two problems with these Levitical priests. Levitical meaning they were from the tribe of Levi. They were Levites. One, they died. They were people. They weren't forever. They died. And so you needed new priests and new priests and new priests. One priest was not good forever. Number two, they sinned. They were people. They made mistakes. And so not only did they have to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people... They had to offer sacrifices on their behalf as well. And so these Levitical priests were humans, so they made mistakes, they sinned, and they also died. They weren't forever. And because of that, this old sacrificial system was not perfect. Or it couldn't do the one thing that we as humans needed it to do. It could not forgive sin, therefore it could not save people. Hebrews 7, 17, we're, we're, we're getting closer here. We see Psalm 110.4 reference, okay? Now, this is a, an old prophecy where it said that Jesus was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You guys ever heard of him before, Melchizedek, anyone? A few people? Oh, it's great. It's more than I thought. This is, Matthew, you guys are doing a great job here. This is, this is awesome. This is awesome. Right, but Melchizedek was the only person in the Old Testament who was both a priest and a king, See, in the Old Testament, those two were separate. Priests were from the tribe of Levi. Kings were from the tribe of Judah. So when it says that Jesus was in the order of Melchizedek, this is a prophecy pointing to Jesus would in fact be both priest and king. He he would be the mediator, the interceder, and he would be authority over all. You see, because of that, Jesus is better than the old system. He's perfect. He lives forever. He's superior to any other priest, superior to any other mediator. And we're almost to verse 25. Verse 19 says, the law made nothing perfect. Remember, the law could not save people. The law could not forgive sin. The law made nothing perfect, but a better hope is introduced, Jesus, through which we can draw near to God. A better hope is introduced. It's pointing to something greater. Verse 22 says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The old way of doing things pointed to something greater, pointed to a need for something more. Jesus is the guarantor of that new covenant, of that better thing. He is the better thing. And finally, 23, 24 say, the former priests were many in number. Remember, they died. They were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, but Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He won't die. He'll last forever. And finally, finally, verse 25. Consequently. Remember what we just summarized. Consequently, as a result of the law and the Old Testament sacrificial system not being able to cleanse of our sins and forgive us. Consequently, as a result of the Levitical priests being far from perfect and dying. Consequently, as a result of Jesus being the priest that is perfect and forever. Because of those things, 
Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Veritas, consequently, Jesus is able to save. He's done all that is necessary for our salvation. He's perfect. And his sacrifice on the cross was a once and for all sacrifice. It was sufficient to cover the sins of the world. There was nothing more needed. He was the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice, who was nailed to the cross in our place. He took on the punishment and the torture that we deserved. He did what the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do. He has the ability to forgive sin. He has the the ability to save. And therefore, he is our great high priest. Different from all that came before him. Better than all that came before him. He can save completely. He can save all who come to God through him. Because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost. There's that word again. Uttermost. Those that draw near to God through him. Another way to think of the word uttermost is to think like to the furthest or always or completely. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Because he was perfect, because he died in our place, through faith in Christ, we can be saved to the uttermost. Our sin gets placed on him and his righteousness gets credited to us. Uttermost. To put it another way, you can't outdo, you can't outsin the grace of God. He's the perfect Savior who saves to the uttermost. Now, what does that mean? It means if you're coming in here this morning and, and you're interested in this new church plant in Urbana, and you're like, I, I kind of like people here, and th- this is great, I love to worship. Or you're like, I, I like learning more about God's word. This, this is interesting to me. I want to know more. Well, let's just be honest. The person to your left or right drug you here, like, I don't want to be here. But he made me, she made me. Whatever the case is, if you're here sitting here thinking, I, I don't think that God can forgive me. You guys don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've said. And for those reasons, you're questioning the ability of God to forgive. He can never love me. He can never forgive me. This passage and many others in scripture say you are dead wrong. There is nothing you can do that is greater than God's grace. How is that possible? This verse says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Through through him, through through Jesus. How? It says, since since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to intercede on our behalf. Remember, the priests of the Old Testament, they interceded or they mediated on behalf of Israel, on behalf of God's people. But that system had a flaw. It couldn't save people. Jesus, who's also king over all, who is the perfect high priest, can save. He does save. And so we need Jesus to intercede for us like he did on the cross. We needed him to do that. That's how he's able to save to the uttermost. Completely his doing. We bring nothing to the table. (laughs) 
But that event was in the past. And you might be still thinking like, but what is he doing now? What, what is he doing today? What is he doing as we're sitting here hanging out together? Look at verse 25 more closely. It says, Jesus always lives. He always lives. Not past tense. He always lives to make intercession for them. So what's he doing now? He's interceding on our behalf. He's up there at the right hand of God the Father interceding. You see, our salvation was accomplished on the cross. Our debt was paid in full. We received Christ's righteousness through faith and our sin was forgiven. And, and, we're also dependent upon him as he intercedes on our behalf right now. You see, Jesus is the great high priest always, forever, and it's perfect. So what's he doing today? What's he doing right now? He's interceding on your behalf. If you've put your faith in Christ, he is interceding for you. Is he taking time off? Is he just relaxing between the first coming and the second coming a few hundred years in between? No, he's interceding for you. So what, what, what does this look like? Like what, when you say that, what, what, what do you mean he's interceding for you? He's talking to God on your behalf. He's talking to God on your behalf. You see, we see examples of this throughout scripture. In John 17, I want you to write this down, or at least think about it, make a mental note. John 17. Okay, we're not going to spend time in here today. But at some point this week, read John 17. Jesus prays for his disciples. He talks to God on behalf of his disciples. And then he prays for future believers. If you're a follower of Christ, he prays for you. He prays for you. Read that chapter. It's going to be a very profound. Another example we see, Luke 22, 31 through 32. Jesus prays for Peter. Okay, he says, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He prays for Peter that his faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You guys know what happens right after this prayer? Right after he tells Peter this? Jesus is arrested. And then Peter, strengthened by faith, defends his friend. That's my Savior. I know him, right? No, no. Peter denies him three times. I don't know him. I've never seen him. Me and him, nope, there's, there's nothing there. Denies him th- three times. And so did Peter fail? Yes, yes. Did his faith fail? I don't think so. Because we see later on who ran to the tomb after the women came back and told the disciples that it was empty. Peter, he sprints towards it. And also, who did God use in incredible ways to build the early church in Acts? Peter. What did Jesus pray? He prayed that your faith, Peter, may not fail. And Peter's faith did not fail. You see, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, Jesus is interceding on on your behalf. He's communicating with God. He's pleading to God on your behalf. He's up in heaven, currently at the right hand of God the Father, acting on your behalf. How? How? One, he's pleading your case before the Father. We see in John, 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, he's our advocate before God the Father. He secured our salvation on the cross, which is why he said it is finished, and he's continuing to work on our behalf. He's applying our salvation every single day. When we sin, when we do something stupid, when we make mistakes, for those of you who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, the verdict is what? Guilty. Guilty. For those of you who've put your faith in Christ, when we make a mistake, when we sin, when we do something stupid, Christ is saying, my blood covered that. Forgiven. Innocent. Righteous. He's pleading our case before the Father. Second, Jesus frees us from condemnation. Okay, towards the end of Romans 8, Paul asks a series of questions. He says, who can be against believers? Who can condemn them? Who can separate them from the love of Christ? And he later says the answer is, is nobody. No one can, which should be very assuring for us as followers. Verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. You see it again. He's interceding for us. The question raised here in this passage is, who is to condemn? You see, as followers of Christ, the reality is is that many people try to condemn us. They just do. Our own hearts even try to condemn us. We see that in 1 John 3.20. Our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, they try to condemn us. We sin, we do something stupid, make a mistake. We're tempted to wallow in our circumstances. Dwell in our guilt, be filled with shame, fixate on what we did, try and condemn ourselves. How could you? Moron, again? Again? Five times this week? Can you not do that? What were you thinking? God can never use you, let alone forgive you. Have you ever thought that before? Have you ever told yourself that? We often try to condemn ourselves. Others can condemn us, right? Question your faith, belittle the gospel. Our sin can condemn us. Satan, the accuser, tries to condemn us. See this in Revelation 12.10. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. It says, For the accuser, for Satan, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Now look at what he does. The accuser, Satan, he accuses them day and night before our God. Nonstop. Accusing, accusing, accusing. Satan's the accuser. He accuses brothers and sisters in Christ day and night, all the time. You see, Satan hates God. He can't stand Christians. Anything that gets God's glory, he's like, no, I don't, no, I don't like that. I want to try to stop that. I want to condemn that. And so for that reason, he accuses Christians continually. So picture this, Veritas. Satan, in the throne room of God, attempting to accuse us, attempting to condemn us, to convince God that he shouldn't love us, to try and convince God that he shouldn't forgive us, to convince God to not apply his grace to us. He's not worthy. She fails all the time. He doesn't trust you. See how many mistakes she makes? How could she choose the world over you that many times? 
Can you believe he still struggles with that? Isn't it funny how your follower spends hours on social media making a name for him or herself or scrolling aimlessly and yet can't spend three minutes in prayer? Like, that's your child, God? Huh, could have fooled me. Accuse, condemn, accuse, condemn. We can put on our Sunday best. We can uh, make a happy face and walk in these doors and everything's great. But can you imagine if we had like a thought bubble or word picture above everyone's head with the five top sins or temptations we're all struggling with? That'd be an interesting church service, wouldn't it? Like, ugh, wow. You're like, why are you up there? That'd be condemning. You'd be able to accuse each other. Guys, here's the reality is Satan knows humanity. He understands what we struggle with, and he has no problem pointing that out to God the Father. It's reassuring, isn't it? No, it's not. A lot of people try and condemn us. A lot of people, uh, Satan, things, our own hearts, try to accuse us. But who, according to Romans 8.34, can condemn a follower of Christ? Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because of Jesus. Because he's interceding on our behalf. He's our great high priest. He lived, he died, he was raised. He's now at the right hand of God the Father, representing those who have put faith in him. He's our advocate. He's our representative. He's on the front lines doing battle in the throne room of God, interceding for us right now. Those are my children. They are forgiven. What I accomplish on the cross covers that. My righteousness is attributed to them. They're mine. That should blow your mind. That Jesus is constantly interceding for you if you are a believer in him. This should cause you to have great confidence, great hope, and great joy. Not in yourself, but in Jesus. So the question becomes, what do we do with this? Like what, so what? Like what's the application? And I'm a guy who likes checklists. I like, give me five bullet points. Let me cross those babies off. But this passage isn't that clear as far as next steps go. Here's a possible application. Here's a possible challenge for you. Fix your gaze on Jesus above all else. Fix your gaze on Jesus above all else. Continually remind yourself how great of a Savior we have. In our day and age, it's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to lose focus. It's so easy to worry about things, get anxious about things, focus on things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, right? My family and I recently got back from a eight, nine-day trip to Montana. We were up by Glacier National Park. Absolutely incredible. So many encounters with wildlife, great scenery, lots of memories made for my family and I. One of the things we did was we went on a lot of hikes. 
Okay, and these aren't like hikes through, you know, wherever. These are like mountain hikes, which were really, really cool. But I often found myself focusing on my immediate surroundings, like what's right in front of me. And so there were times where the vegetation was so dense and there were thick pine trees and you really couldn't see very far. And so despite the fact that there were like gorgeous mountains and scenery out there, all I could see was right here. Or there were times where I was so focused on my kids that, hey, don't trip, don't fall, don't fall off that cliff. Like That was focused right here and not out there. Other times I had bear spray in my pocket, which you think about, it's like, okay, there's a charging grizzly bear that weighs 1,000 pounds. Is this really going to work? But I think I could in the moment maybe pull the pin, pull the trigger, see what happens. But my mind went there. Also, I just found myself looking at the back of whatever kid was in front of me's foot. Like, okay, they're walking. This is great. But it wasn't until I looked up that I was completely blown away by God's creation. It wasn't until I looked up that I was completely in awe of my surroundings. That I was completely in awe of the power and the majesty of God himself. So much so that my kids were making fun of me nonstop because I repeated a phrase over and over and over and over again. This is insane. This is insane. This is insane, 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 insane. Go around the corner. This is insane. Dad, we know. Stop. My encouragement to you this morning is to look up is to fix your gaze on Jesus, is to think about how great of a Savior we have. Be blown away by the fact that he's right now, this second, interceding for you on your behalf. He's talking to God the Father on your behalf. If you find yourself asking, where is Jesus and what is he doing? You're probably focusing on the wrong thing. What claims your focus? What claims your attention? Where does your mind, where do your thoughts go? Veritas, ultimately, what can we do? Here's my encouragement to you. Turn your attention to Jesus, our perfect Savior, who lives to intercede on your behalf. You see, a main argument throughout the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better. He's better. He's better. Do you believe that? Does your life reflect the fact that you believe that? What priority does Jesus have in your life? How much of your attention goes towards him? Are you so focused on your immediate surroundings, what's right here, what's right here, what's right here, what's right here, that you lose sight of the big picture? that you fail to understand how great he is, that that you fail to fix your attention to him and worship him? Those are questions worth considering this morning. Draw near to him through his word. Draw near to him through prayer. Draw near to him through fellowship with other believers. Draw near to him through corporate worship. Draw near to him by orienting the posture of your heart towards him above all things. You see, Veritas, if we truly fix our eyes and our gaze on Jesus, we're going to be compelled to worship him. We're going to be compelled to worship him. Why? Because he's our great high priest. Because he saves to the uttermost, and he's constantly interceding for us. For you. 
You see, if we fix our gaze on Jesus, we're going to be filled with hope and confidence. Once again, not in ourselves, not in what we do or don't do, but in what he did and does. Anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, despair, our immediate surroundings. I'm not saying those are going to go away, but they're going to pale in comparison to the reality of who Jesus is. If we quit worrying about all those things, if we quit focusing on our immediate surroundings, if we lifted our gaze to our great high priest, to our Lord and Savior, our church would be radically different from the world around us. We would be compelled to worship. We would be driven to worship. Our lives would be characterized by worship of God. Our church would be marked with with joy, not because of our circumstances, but in spite of our circumstances, whether they're good or bad. Our joy would be from Christ. And finally, like last week, the Great Commission, we would actually live that out. We would want to make the name of Jesus great. We would want to share the gospel. And we wouldn't care if people thought we were idiots or rejected us or made fun of us. Why? Because our worth and value is not found in them. Because our gaze is above. Because we're focused on Christ. Above all else, we could have hope and confidence in the fact that Jesus not only interceded for us on the cross, but he also stands before God the Father every single day, interceding, pleading for, representing those who've put their faith in him. I want to finish by looking at Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. It just says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus is perfect. He lives forever. And we can have confidence and hope in our Lord who offered himself as a sacrifice. He's superior to anyone, to anything, and he's worthy of your trust and your devotion. Another encouraging thing is he has you in his grasp if you're a follower of him, if you put your faith in him, and he's not going to let go. And so when you stumble, when you sin, when you doubt, when you have anxiety, when you're living in fear, remember that he is interceding for you all the time, that he's your advocate, that he's pleading with the Father, that he's giving you a source of identity. And because Jesus is both king, he's ultimate authority, and the great high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, because of those things, because of the fact that he's talking to God on our behalf, should give you great confidence and hope. Let's pray. Lord, um, it's humbling to think that you would die for us while we were still sinners, Lord. And it's also frustrating to think that so often we get sidetracked, that so often our our minds go other places, that so often we worry about things that don't even matter, that we lose sight of the big picture, that we're so focused on our immediate surroundings that, that we just fail to realize, to understand, to comprehend, to marvel at the fact that you are our great high priest that through faith in you, we can be reconciled to God. 
Lord, so I pray that that fact would motivate us, would drive us to worship, would cause us to spread the gospel, would cause us to both speak and live in a way that others around us be like, what, what's going on there? Lord, ultimately, we're just so thankful that you are our great high priest, that you are forever and that you are perfect, that you died in our place. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.